0: I can invite you to remain standing, our scripture reading comes this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. It's good to be here with you all this morning. Um, I wanted to begin by uh, sharing, I'm sure many of you read in the church email this past week, um, our hiring announcement that uh, the church, the SPRC, had decided to hire Annabelle Rangel and Zachary McAllister uh, to... Yeah, you can... As we looked, it became obvious that uh, probably our two best candidates to split the music position job were already here working for us and sharing their gifts and talents. And so, um, unfortunately, Zachary called me this morning and uh, is sick and said, you don't want me in church. And I agreed 100%, and so um, we'll welcome him next week. But it's great to have Annabelle on staff as she's going to be doing. Well, they're both just going to be sharing us their gifts and talents and uh, doing it in a collaborative approach that I think is going to enable the church to just do so much more, and also to be flexible, because this morning, uh, you know, Zachary was able to call Annabelle, and she covered, and thank God for that, and what a great piece the choir sang, and so I just want to welcome both of them, and, and thank you. Um, so, I also want to begin by just sharing with you that this morning, you know, we're continuing our, our sermon series as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, as you all know, is the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6 and chapter 7. And so this fall, what we're going to be doing is, is just going through this sermon, the greatest sermon that's ever told, because these are words of Jesus. These are teachings of Jesus. This is not someone else interpreting what Jesus is saying or going anywhere like that. This is Jesus talking to the crowds. He's talking to the disciples. And most importantly, what he's telling them and what he is telling us is how we as followers of him are supposed to live differently. So he's talking about what he believes, followers of him, like how we're supposed to conduct ourselves, how we're supposed to believe, how we're supposed to treat one another and live with one another. And so if you think about it, the Sermon on the Mount, if you sit down and read it, and I'd encourage you to do so at some point, just to sit down and and take, it's 10 minutes maybe, and read the three chapters, because what they are is they're a progression, where Jesus builds on the, his teachings and he begins with, with um, you know, the, just the introductory words that we read about that Matthew adds kind of as narration. And then he begins with, with the Beatitudes... And as we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, the Beatitudes, um, Jesus didn't deliver them as a way for you and I to say, well, this is what Jesus says, and then to try and and put these words out into the culture for people that don't believe. This is Jesus saying, blessed are those of you who recognize this about yourself and about what you need in following me. Which really, if you think about it, that's kind of a different way of thinking about it because there's been a school of or a time of biblical teaching where we really have tried to place the beatitudes as something where where we're trying to push out Christianity into the culture without asking people to respond with a change of heart and with a change of mind and inviting God to be into their lives. And that's not really how it works, is it? I mean, I don't know about you and as we're going to see today when we read the scriptures, they're speaking to us. People who believe or they're speaking to people who are searching. Or there's people who are speaking to people who who want to grow. And so Jesus began with the Beatitudes in this progression of saying to his followers, these are the ways that my followers should live in order to grow closer to me and in order to grow closer to God. And what they do is they help us to see that that we recognize that we are sinful, we recognize that we have shortcomings, we recognize that we need grace, and then they progress from recognizing that to, to where he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Part of what it says is Jesus is saying it's perfectly natural if you recognize that you have to give something else up in your life that's a sin or something that's between you and him, that it's natural, it's normal for us to mourn that. Like, I don't know about you, but often, many times, if we have to give something up, or if we know that something's changing, I don't know about you, but there's sometimes grief with that, isn't there? And that's what Jesus is saying, is that's perfectly normal. He says it's fine, it's natural, because it's a progression of you recognizing where you were and recognizing where you, where you need to be and recognizing that there's loss in that sometimes. But the loss that we receive in Christ Jesus is a gain, isn't it? And so each of these Beatitudes is, is like a Christian mark. Where we can evaluate where we are and we we can evaluate where we need to be as followers of Jesus. And then last week we took the next step. As we read this sermon where Jesus talks about his followers being salt and being light. And what Jesus is saying is this, is he's saying as followers of me, your new vocation is to be salt and light. Your new vocation in being a follower of him is to be someone Who offers flavor or halts decay or shines light and reflects His light into your world, into the relationships that you're in, and into the places that God Himself places you? You know, in biblical times, I mean, we know this today. Salt is, you know, it's no good if it's not used. It's no good if it loses its flavor. Light is ineffective if it's not put in a place where everyone can see it. But that's the same with our faith. Jesus wants us to be salty. He wants us to add flavor. He wants us to, to be a people that are present and speaking out to halt decay. clay. But he also has placed us in places where we reflect the light of God that he is shining into us, into the lives of others, into the places of others, so that we will illumine them so that they can discover God for themselves. And so today we're talking about the next step that Jesus uh, talks about, in these, and he's answering questions. And the questions that are coming for him, you know, you can see in the graphic, the men to the right are Pharisees. They're teachers of the law. They're the scribes. They're the ones that that, um, have made a profession in their life. The scribes are are professional uh, interpreters of the law. And so these are men that have been trained from a young age to, to learn to interpret the law in the many different ways that those of the Jewish faith in those times interpreted the law. And so this was their profession. The Pharisees, we know, are a lay movement. So it's, it's men who, who are working in, in their businesses, but who also have devoted themselves to learning the law and to interpreting the law and to figuring out what it means to pro- properly live under the, the mantle of God. And we know that they're ans- asking Jesus questions. Now, in this portion of Matthew's gospel, Matthew doesn't write them, but we know from Mark and Luke and other places in the gospels and from the answers that Jesus is giving... We kind of know what he's answering. Here's the questions that they're posing to him. With what authority do you do these things? I think that's a question we read about in all of the Gospels, isn't it? Or they're also asking, you know, what are we, think, what are we to think about your teachings versus the law of Moses? So they're trying to set Jesus up against the law of Moses, aren't they? <clears throat> And so to go further into those questions, they're questioning what Jesus thinks about following the law, about what he thinks about the Sabbath. They want to know how he can heal on the Sabbath or or why he can heal at all. They want to know how his teachings, these new teachings where he is expanding on Moses' law, can really align with or not align with their own teaching and their own understanding of what it means to live faithfully. Mainly what they're doing is is they're they're wanting to know what Jesus is saying so that they can measure his words to the words of the Old Testament. Because they either want to call him out or call out his teachings or point out his teachings that go against what they believe the laws of Moses say. So after the crowds have heard the Beatitudes, so the marks of what it means to be a follower, Jesus is now telling them this that they're to live under the law of Moses. And then he says, by living as a a Christian, or living righteously as a Christian, you're to follow the law. I mean, isn't he, in his own words, telling us what he believes about the Old Testament and its relationship to the gospel and to the New Testament? Really to the gospel, really to his words. Because these are Jesus' exact words, aren't they? He's telling us what he believes about the Old Testament and the way that it can give us insight, the way that it can give us a view into what God expects for us as his followers. And so in the first sentence of what we've read this morning, Jesus tells us what he thinks about the Old Testament and his ministry. He says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the stroke of a pen, least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. Folks, I don't know about you, but is there any way that Jesus could have been more direct to those listening to him in saying, I'm not here to toss out the Old Testament? Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's not telling us that the Old Testament is going to be set aside. He's not telling us that the Old Testament is going to be tossed out. This is Jesus. This is God speaking with his own voice and the full authority of God telling us that he's coming to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. This means he's not setting aside. It means he's not setting aside the law. He's saying that that the law is only going to be set aside once everything has been accomplished, which means the final ending, the, the kingdom of God. And so instead, what he's saying is, look at me, look at my ministry, see how I am fulfilling the words of the prophets, the words of the things that you are looking for in anticipating a Messiah. Look how I am fulfilling the the idea and understanding on doctrine, of atonement, of forgiveness of sin. Jesus is saying, I fulfill them. I mean, just look at the book of Exodus. In Exodus, Israel's being told by God that that they had to offer a sacrifice for their sins. Here's an iconograph. This is in a Greek Orthodox church. I don't know where. But, you know, that's the the graphic that's often used to show that Jesus was the final atoning sacrifice. The final um, sacrifice that's made on our behalf for the forgiveness of sin. Now where Jesus is saying he's finally fulfilled it is because in the Old Testament we know that the forgiveness only lasted as long as the sacrifice was being offered and then once the sacrifice was done being offered the forgiveness was done and another sacrifice was required. That's a lot of lambs, y'all. But Jesus makes himself the final one. And so he fulfills the need that you and I each have to offer a physical sacrifice on the altar for God. He fulfills the words of the Messiah where the prophets looked ahead and said, one will be coming, out of the stump of Jesse will be coming. You know, all of the the words that we read about in the Old Testament that tell us that someone is coming, a Messiah is coming. Is Jesus not saying, I'm here to fulfill I'm here to offer the future hope that you are looking for, that you are anticipating through the words of the prophets. And I'm the Messiah, the perfect sacrifice. See, friends, I think what Jesus is saying is that he's saying to his followers, I don't intend for you to separate your faith and your belief from the words of God that we read about in the Old Testament. And that the gospel, the New Testament, is to be paired with the Old Testament because really we read the entire corpus of the Bible, both old and new, as the story of God as he is telling and as he is offering and as he has given us his son Jesus. This means that from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, God is telling us about Jesus. He's telling us about our brokenness. He's telling us about our incompleteness. He's telling us about the life that he offers and the forgiveness that we can receive through his son. It's all together. And see, there's a temptation for us to separate the Old and the New, the gospel from the New Testament. And it's happened since the very beginning of Christianity. So one of the most well-known, if if you look, it's this man named Marcion of uh, Sinope's in modern-day Turkey. Marcion lived in the second century. You can see his birth, year, or his years that he lived up on the screen. Uh, he believed that it, Jesus was entirely new and entirely independent from God. He did not believe that the God of the Old Testament, that at times appears vengeful, could have sent Jesus as the final sacrifice for sin. And so, to align his scriptures with theology, he took the Bible and he rewrote it. He removed the Old Testament entirely. And then he went through the Gospel of Luke and he removed every portion of the Gospel of Luke that referred to the Old Testament. Whether it was a word of Jesus or not, he cut it out. So, kind of like that, right there. Does anyone have a Bible like that? Um, although, we might. Uh, he removed the Old Testament, he rewrote the Gospel, and then so he used Luke, and then he used the book of Acts, and then he used some of the New Testament letters of Paul, but he didn't use any of the other letters. And so it was a huge heresy at the time, second century. This was one of the, the biggest and, and first, you know, huge um, kind of conflicts or, or issues that had to be re- resolved in the earliest Christian church. This is also where the church had to, had to come and wrestle with the fact that Jesus was the full incarnation of God, meaning that he is fully man, he is fully divine, he is both in one person. And so all the other church fathers of Marcion's time had to teach and speak out against him. You know, I was thinking, and, and I didn't write it in the sermon or anything, but, um, you know, it's kind of a modern day example, like the Jefferson Bible, right? Thomas Jefferson had his own Bible that he pulled out, the scriptures that he thought were were authentic, and he pulled out scriptures he didn't like, didn't he? All I'm saying is there's a temptation for us to do that ourselves. There's a temptation for us to pull out the scriptures that we don't like or we don't want to deal with. And what Jesus is saying to us is, Is that if you're going to read the Bible, you have to read the Old Testament as well as the New because you can't understand how He fulfills the promises in the Old Testament, how He fulfills the prophecies in the Old Testament, how He fulfills all of the Old Testament without, or New, how He fulfills it all. You can't read the Gospel without reading the Old. And that's why He keeps saying, I am the fulfillment. I'm the fulfillment. And, you know, to set him against the Pharisees and the scribes of those time, you know, they were, they were offering an interpretation of the Old Testament that was very different. You know, they, they both um, focused on, both these groups focused on what it meant to externally appear righteous without internally having a change of heart. And so they broke in the Old Testament law into 248 commandments. You're going to need a lot of signs if you're going to put all those commandments up. And then he'd gone, they had gone farther by uh, taking those 248 commandments and adding on top of them 365 prohibitions. And so they oriented everything that we're doing around the 248 laws and the 365 prohibitions and whether or not people were externally following them. Friends, that's a lot of work to be faithful, isn't it? It seems to me, and I think this is why Jesus is talking about it, is because faithful people were spending all of their time worrying about how they were living externally as opposed to worrying about what was happening internally. And part of Jesus' issue with the Old Testament teachers was not that people were trying to follow the law, not that they were trying to help people follow the law, but his uh, issue was that they were spending all their time also finding ways to look for the loopholes in the law. That's a good one. Um, You know, but the loopholes, you know, and so what they're saying is, well, if you do this and do this, but then you do this this way, you can get around this area of the law. And so for Jesus, this is basing faith off work. This is basing faith off action. And as we've read in his words in the Gospels, as we read in the Gospel of... as we read in the book of James, we read that faith comes by the change in heart. And for him, it was that the law was supposed to bring. And so he didn't toss it aside, but what he did is he joined the law with grace, And he joined the law with forgiveness. Meaning that we receive these gifts, meaning that we receive the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross, meaning that we receive the forgiveness that he has given each of us. But we don't just accept those things, but we work to rectify those areas of our lives that cause us to need those things. See, what it means is you can be forgiven while you're working to rid whatever area of your life it is that you need forgiveness for that's grace and that requires a change of heart a change of heart that is we're gonna see in the coming weeks requires us joining our faith with love with the outcome being a change in behavior an expansion in our belief and action see that's Christian righteousness It's a righteousness that comes from the inward change of our hearts and it's reflected outwardly. It's when the the marks that we read and the beatitudes are internalized and become who we are and then we become the light as we reflect that light outward. And it's when our faith is acted upon and motivated by love. Because God knows the motivation for our actions, doesn't he? And Jesus tells us that our motivation for our actions are motivated by the condition of our hearts. Friends, that's the only way that Jesus says that your righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus isn't telling you to become a Pharisee. He's not telling you to become a scribe. He's not telling you to become a teacher of the law, but what he's saying is that your heart is to reflect your faith. And your actions are to reflect your heart. And when God is fueling our actions, then we're going to experience the change of heart. We receive the grace that God gives. And we live a life of righteousness and discipleship. And he says, not it's because of what we've done. But it's because of what God has done. For Jesus did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. But he came to fulfill them and in fulfilling them. He offers us grace, hope, forgiveness and the opportunity to change our hearts so that everything we do is a response and an act of Christian righteousness because of what God has done in our lives. Amen.